Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, welcome back. Steve Jobs once said, if Henry Ford had asked his customers what they want, they would have said a faster horse. You see, he said, it's not the customer's job to know what they want. Well, when you create a trillion-dollar company in the iPhone, you get to say stuff like that. Just how would your life be different if Steve Jobs had designed your EHR? Could a dream team from Apple design a perfect hospital without any input from physicians and nurses who work there? What if they said, it's not the doctor's job to know what they want because we know what's best for them? Yeah, we don't think so either. Medical space design is something we take for granted every day, often only crossing our minds when we're frustrated about it. And sometimes, let's admit, it's pretty frustrating. Much of this frustration originates from the gulf between those who design these spaces and those of us who actually work in them. It affects our work, our mood, and as research is now showing, even patient outcomes. As a trained physician and an architect, Dr. Diana Anderson, the docitect as she is known, understands this better than most. She has worked on hospital design projects in the U.S., Canada, and Australia, and is widely published in both architectural and medical journals, books, even the popular press. She's currently a fellow at the Harvard Medical School Center for Bioethics. Obviously, just the kind of unique perspective and background we love to find on this show. When we're thinking about a lot of the problems in design and medicine in general, maybe we're all just looking for faster horses when what we actually need requires a different perspective. With that said, let's get started. Diana, thank you so much for joining us today. We've uh, gone through a few hoops to get you on, but we finally made it. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Keith. Thanks, Colin. I'm really excited to talk about design and health. Well, we are too. So uh, we went over this a little bit in the introduction, but I thought an interesting place to start is Finland. And doing some of the research here, this was an inspiration to you, but also to a number of other people. This was an early design example that blew my mind. This is actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So tell us about the sanatorium there. What, what about was so unusual and how did that inspire your path? So I think it's a great question. And for me, you know, we talk about these aha moments in people's lives where you just change course because of one experience. And for me, going to Finland, I was a recently graduated undergraduate student in architecture, preparing for a master's degree in design, not quite sure what to study. And I had this trip with some classmates to Scandinavia. And, you know, throughout my life in Canada, I'd always experienced hospitals as sort of scary antiseptic places. I didn't like the smells and I sort of cringed up every time I walked in. So we had planned a visit to tuberculosis sanatorium, which now functions as a general hospital. So it is a World Heritage Site, but it's still actually working as a hospital environment. And, you know, honestly, we drove there in the middle of this wonderful pine forest, walked in, and I just thought, I don't feel queasy or nervous. And I couldn't understand why. And it was that experience of going through this wonderful hospital full of daylight, plants everywhere, balconies for patients to go out onto, communal dining spaces that fostered interactivity, um, specific chairs that the architect had designed for people with breathing trouble and TB. You know, he thought if they reclined at a certain angle, they would be able to breathe easier. Patient rooms that had separate spit basins for sputum versus sinks because the architect didn't think people should wash their hands where they're spitting up sputum that's potentially infectious, although we didn't know a lot about TB back then. Mm. All of these little details culminated in this design that was just so therapeutic. And that was really Alvaralto's inspiration, the architect, to use the building as a form of treatment. And so, you know, sanatoriums started in about the 1860s. This one is sort of 1920s, 30s. 
Um, but it's been a big inspiration to a lot of people because the architect went just beyond the skin of the building and designed every feature and almost almost experienced it as a patient would. And you can think he probably went in there and tried to understand what is this disease? How does it affect a patient and what can we do? Um, the regimen was really, as you know, or might know, but fresh air, natural light and exercise as part of the routine every day. And, you know, if you think about it now, it wouldn't be very ethical for us to put a patient with TB in one of these facilities because we know more, we have medications. But back then, that was how they treated it. Um, the building was their form of treatment to remove people right. from their stressful city environments. So I guess to me, considering aesthetic building properties, um, looking at the autonomy of the patient and, you know, you can even think of the sanatorium and link it back to some designs of the early asylum and mental health facilities where they also put them outside the city with lots of grounds to cover and green. A really inspirational moment. And at that point I said, well, you know, what would it be like to design a hospital for modern day? And then I spun into a master's program where I proposed a design for a Canadian hospital at the time, uh, part of McGill. And in order to do that, I had to study how hospitals were built, how they functioned. I went on a few fellowship trips to the United States and Canada, looking at different hospitals, interviewing physicians and architects, trying to understand hospitals, a very complex building type. It's a lot like a city. It's got, mm. you know, the main arteries, different areas. You have to feed right. people. They sleep overnight. It's, it's really dynamic space. And then through that all, I really enjoyed talking to a lot of the clinicians. I'd always wanted to work sort of in the humanities with people. And I sort of said to myself, you know, I really think clinical medicine might be more my calling. Um, and I went right from my thesis in architecture to medical school, but I could never give up one for the other. I always had, you know, sort of a foot in each door. And as I studied medicine, <laughs> as we were, you know, on my fellowship trip, I kept um, looking at all the doctors and nurses rounding saying, gosh, I really wish I was them. And then when I uh, went to medical school, I would see the architects counting the ceiling <laughs> tiles on rounds and measuring. Oh, I really wish I was back there. So. I thought there must be a way to merge these, especially seeing that there's kind of a gap between the way we envision space and then how right. users actually use it at the end. And that's okay. I think people assume an architect or somebody will design a building and it'll be perfect when the doors open. And that's never the case. There's always adjustments to make. Right. A little bit like when we treat patients, we adjust dosing as we go, side effects happen. Buildings are not perfect when they open. We have to assume there's a period of adjustment. I think a lot of our listeners would be a little surprised with the concept of hospitals being built. I mean, when I was in the hospital, it was more a sense that it was growing the way it was, almost like a mushroom. And so you'll have a uh, building and then another building attached, another building attached. Um, so how, um, how have you looked at that and how have you looked at existing space and, and trying to, to make some sense of that in terms of, of functionality? I mean, that's a trickier question and obviously kind of depends on the case-by-case -case scenario and also varies around the world. So mm -hmm. there's been a big push in the last couple of decades for what we now don't like to term the super hospital. It's a little bit big right. and unwieldy, but Australia, Canada, even the U.S. was, and I had gone over to Australia and participated in some projects where essentially you're designing an 800 to 1,000 bed hospital on a flat piece of land on you know, the Sunshine Coast or somewhere wonderful where you could do whatever you want. Obviously you had a budget, but you're starting mm -hmm. from the ground up. It's more difficult when you go into the Northeast of the US, you're looking at Boston, New York, these very old buildings, low floor to ceiling heights, different right. mechanical systems, and we have to retrofit them. And then you get this whole 
piecemeal solution where there's old parts and new parts, different heights and wayfinding is a disaster. Um, so that's a real challenge for architects. And I have to say, um, our building codes, you know, provide minimum standards. But I guess an example I can give you is that in New York, there's still some critical care rooms that have no windows for patients, which, you know, right. if you were building a new unit today or you even wanted to renovate something, you'd, you'd have to put in a window by code. In about 2010, we recognized the benefits of, of windows and changed all of our building codes. If you look at Europe, there are laws stating that workers in office buildings can't be within a certain amount of, you know, a few meters from a window. They have to have access to daylight. So how is it okay that in hospitals, patients might be in an ICU for weeks, You're very sick patients, it's not just a day or two, um, and have no access to daylight. So my personal kind of next steps with healthcare design is really to look at these codes and guidelines and say, how can we retrofit? And if we can't, because the building is so deep, or there just aren't any windows, are there other solutions that deal with technology where we can mimic a window or circadian rhythms and really improve the space? Or can we really just not have this space? It just doesn't function for today's technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I know everybody wants to know, you know, what can I do in my particular space? Everybody's probably thinking about their own ICU or emergency room or patient room or staff lounge. And it's hard. I think, you know, different groups have, have contacted me and we've talked and architects work with different clinicians. But I think it's about taking the space you have. And often groups have to identify variables that can affect experience both patient experience and provider experience, and change what they can. Sometimes we just can't put a window. So can we change the aesthetics of a space? Um, There's some studies looking at oncology patients and chemo treatments. If we integrate art or have patients bring in even pictures, as simple as that, this actually Mm -hmm. improves their quality of stay, quality of life, depression scores. It's pretty amazing. Even a small, it's not even an architectural intervention. It's more of an interior design solution. Or can we improve flows? Can we make changes? Can we add a countertop so you're not opening your sterile gloves in the OR over a trash can, but you're actually doing it on a surface? <laughs> and we've all had that experience where you just don't right. even have a surface. Um, well, so and, it's, it's a challenge. And that's something I want to come back to at the end, You know, just some, some practical applications, especially in the clinic. Um, but let's get back for a moment to medical school. I mean, it's a fascinating path, but not an easy one that you took. I mean, this took a lot of work and years of school and training. But when I think of the OR, for example, I've heard so many times uh, surgeons yelling at the engineers who are not there who screwed something up. And usually they're yelling at me because I'm there representing whatever it is they're unhappy about. But the second is probably the layout or the size of the OR. Why can't this be different? There's so many, there's such a gap, it seems, between whoever made the decisions and how you know, the patient carrier is laid out and the people who are actually working in those spaces. So take us back, Diana, to your residency. I mean, what were some of the things that really frustrated you, you know, from the clinician side? So that was also a great question and I have some ideas to talk about. But I, um, during my residency, kept, you know, every sort of, well, most of my internal medicine resident colleagues kept little notebooks in our pockets. We write down all the little tidbits at morning report or little factoids you don't want to forget. But I had a separate book. Uh, architects like to use a black sketchbook. And in there were sort of my design notes and my architect's journal, so to speak, of everyone who came up to me and said, <laughs> you're an architect. Let me tell you why this space doesn't work and what I want or what the, should the size of an OR be. You know, I even had a surgeon call me and say he thought he could operate 
much more efficiently if his operating tools or surgical tools were designed differently? And how could we change that? You know, really interesting things. For me in residency, I think frustrating aspects where I think architects could have been used to come in and, and communicate with physicians were just locations of spaces. I don't know if anyone listening has the experience of call rooms, if we even have call rooms mm -hmm. anymore with all of the shift changes in medicine and hours. But um, being on labor delivery floors and call rooms are located you know, two floors up and, you know, six blocks over where you're right. not even going to use this space because practically it doesn't make sense. You want to be right in the thick of things. You want to be in close proximity. So not being able to even lie down just because of where the call room is placed. Um, one of the examples I talk about in many of my lectures, and I have a great photograph, is uh, medical school drums it into, at least they did in Canada, that when you're a physician and you're doing a physical exam, you approach every patient from the right-hand side of the exam table. And, you know, people would get docked points or even fail clinical exams with mock patients for doing this. You know, you come up on the left and the, they sort of said, you're already, it's already wrong. And, you know, people ask me why and I've done some digging and, you know, either it's convention or for various JVP measurements and the liver exam. I don't even know if we still do abdominal exams, many patients <laughs> order x-rays, but, you know, it's a convention. And as soon as I walked into my clinic room as a resident, the exam table was pushed up against the corner on the right-hand side of the patient. And for several years, I could never approach my patient from that side. And I had to, in my head, counteract what I had known and the efficiency of the exam that I had been taught and try to restructure it to, to do it from the left. You know, the blood pressure cuff is stretching across everything. It just didn't make any sense. And I thought, anyone looking at this room design who knows about clinical medicine or even interacts with clinicians and takes them through it would understand this isn't the way that we can be most efficient as practitioners. And, you know, in architecture, we're trying to change that a little bit by mock-ups and simulation. Medicine has really transitioned to simulating experiences, even using virtual reality with, with surgical training. Architects are trying to do the same thing. We often build, sometimes it can be crude, and you even go into a basketball field and you tape the room layout of an ICU with just tape, and you walk through the rooms, hmm. or you build an ICU room out of cardboard. And those ceiling-mounted, we call them booms, everything that has the the plugs and all of the ventilators and gases and suction, where should we put those? You know, should there be two plugs on one and four on the other? But the best way to do that is to simulate. So I think through simulation, we would solve a lot of these problems. And as we get better with technology and informatics, these don't have to be real built mock-ups that can often be expensive, but we can just simulate with virtual reality, have people put on goggles and walk through their space and say, well, look, I'd approach the exam table from the other side before we design it plan it, draw it, and build it, let's make that change. So that's uh, sort of another example where I think the gap exists, and that's something that frustrated me quite a bit. Um, not having windows was something that really tormented me, and I think still does, and I probably have some PTSD from windowless spaces as a clinician. <laughs> I certainly know patients do. I just uh, wrote an article recently looking at the ethics of space design and trying to link medical ethics with architectural ethics. There's not a big body of literature, but, you know, I fundamentally think we need to consider spaces being, you know, appropriately designed and, and treating patients properly with, with where they're located. I had a patient and I quoted him in this article, you know, he had been in the ICU for weeks and he cried as I pushed him up to step down when he finally got out of there. And he said, I thought I'd never see the sky again. And I just thought, how can we, how can we realistically do this to patients? Um, 
and more so, how can we do it to staff? Uh, we run into a big problem now in architecture where plans are very big. Hospitals, everyone wants bigger and bigger spaces, single patient rooms, technology needs to be incorporated. So layouts get bigger, walking distances get longer, floor plans get deeper. And obviously you can't have windows for everybody. Somebody's got the perimeter. And in the United States, most often it's the patients because they're the consumer. Clinicians are sort of relicked back into the bowels of the building um, and there's no daylight. And I'm sure people can relate to, you know, our, our circadian rhythms are already thrown off. And then to be in spaces without daylight, it can be very, very hard. And for me, it was quite a big impact. So much so that I think medicine is relooking at space design. And there's been some interesting developments um, in the idea of downtime or therapeutic space design for clinicians. Um, you know, in the past, I think we had these quote unquote doctor's lounges that, you know, if you look at the literature, a few articles are saying, well, that no longer exists. Everybody's part of a big multidisciplinary care team. We need to be with everybody else. And that makes sense. Patients are complex. So, but where do we go to take a break and just feel this emotive power of architecture and, and recharge? And so the AMA actually put out an article about a year or two ago talking about the idea of the reset room which I really like that terminology. And some hospitals are now implementing that, basically designing a space where people can go to emotionally or mentally reset, not the clean supply utility room where you go to get your supplies and take a moment to shed a tear. Which used to be the surgeon's lounge, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> right. But really creating a space. And, and, you know, it might be an upfront cost. And this brings to mind some cost data and some evidence behind that. But it might be a little upfront cost to, to design a room or have that room, but the return of that room on how much more efficient, if you can prevent one case of burnout, you're already ahead. I mean, if you just look at physician burnout costs, there is some data in the Canadian and American literature to say, you know, a few years ago, an article ran in Critical Care Medicine to say that in Canada, you know, burnout costs is about $200 million a year in the States to replace a primary care physician who leaves, you know, it's about 25,000 ahead. You know, they gave numbers and these are considerable chunks. So what if space can actually have an impact in preventing? I don't know that we can necessarily, the better thing is to prevent um, rather than treat, but can architecture actually prevent some of these things from happening? To me, that's the most exciting part about healthcare design. Can we prevent falls in a patient? Can we prevent delirium from happening? It's very difficult to treat certain things once they happen. I think it's all about how to prevent it through space. Wow, there's so many directions we can go here. So we've got to pick one for the moment. Let's just talk about natural light for a second, because I think we all get that, right? I mean, even if you go out to your car to grab something in the parking lot, you feel better if it's, you know, you've been inside the dungeon all day. What do we know right now, Diana, about natural light and its effect on mood, not just for clinicians, but for patients? So interestingly, you know, I think we assume natural light is good for us. And, you know, it, I think it is. If you're going to ask about the data behind it, it gets a little more tricky. And evidence-based medicine began a number of decades ago. And then several decades later, in about the mid-80s, architecture caught up in a way, uh, and a landmark paper was published in Science. And this paper had a small sample size, but was quite significant in terms of its results and changed the way we do hospital buildings. Um, the paper was done, or the study was done by an environmental psychologist who looked at post-operative patients. They'd had their gallbladders out. Half of them were in a surgical ward that had windows looking at a brick wall. Makes me think about New York, but a brick wall. And then the other half was looking at a park. Lots of green, lots of trees. They actually found that patients who looked at the nature scene went home sooner, so shorter length of stay. 
had higher satisfaction rates, something that's important in the United States to measure, and then use less pain medication. Staff were also more satisfied. Now sort of this landmark, like just a window and the view, not just the window, but the view. So in, in Florida, nursing homes are now pushing for not just having windows, but having a vista. So at least 20 feet of a view, because it's not enough just to put a window and have something that's blocking it. You really want the daylight and the nature. So that study actually spun off and developed into evidence-based design where architects and designers said, okay, well, if physicians are using evidence to base their treatment decisions, maybe we need evidence to base our design decisions. We shouldn't just put in a window. How big should the window be? Where should it be? What's the benefit? And we started to look beyond daylight into sound, wayfinding and flow, sizes of spaces. You know, an operating room is great when it's big, but it can be too big and the distances are too big to walk, and then you become inefficient in your ability to perform surgery. So it's not just about getting bigger and bigger. We have to figure out what size is ideal. But interestingly, that study was actually never replicated. And then in 2013, there was a paper that came out in a critical care journal that actually looked at ICUs. ICUs is a big hot topic in design these days. Um, and some people say we're going towards critical care facilities. There'll be less and less acute beds. But what they did is they looked retrospectively at patients who had uh, windows in their room or didn't, and they found there was actually no cost difference and no difference in outcomes if you had a window. And they even looked at things like delirium. Now, some of the limitations are retrospective data. Sometimes we underreport delirium. Maybe some patients were really sedated in an ICU and their eyes weren't even open. Can we even measure the effects of a window? But this kind of rocked the architectural community, saying we've all been fighting for windows for so long especially in North America, in Europe, the thinking is more that this is just part of good design. Why do we need research to show it? Do we even need evidence-based design? We all know that, you know, I was just recently in Spain and just walking along these grand avenues. You just feel so wonderful walking through these spaces with beautiful facades. You know, the emotive power of architecture is something known. We don't necessarily need to quantify it. Um, so all that to kind of sum up to say even the topic of windows where we think it's straightforward, we've changed all our building codes, isn't actually that straightforward. And we don't actually have any significant quantitative proof on the need for windows. So that is where, you know, I think evidence-based design 30 years later sort of hit a kind of a, a wall in a way and we're looking for new big ideas. And to me, the next phase or the next frontier is teaming architecture and design and public health and physicians teaming together to look at these questions and look at how we can use methodology to quantify our answers and really push the research into a more structured solution. Many things in architecture are quite anecdotal. Um, and that's okay, I, don't, I think anecdotal has a time and place. Um, you might've seen that I've written about an encounter as an intern during my first week as a resident. It was an older woman in the ICU who was probably had a baseline of dementia, but was quite delirious, and we couldn't figure out how to treat her. And she was quite tachycardic. Her heart rate was fast, fast, fast. And she was in a room without a window. And on rounds, we actually stopped and we talked about her room. She'd been there so long. And someone said, well, let's move her to a, a room with a view of the river. And, you know, the medical team actually stopped. We did a PubMed search. And we said, hey, there's some evidence. We looked at the 1984 study. So, you know, we moved her. And the next day on rounds, her heart rate had normalized. And everyone sort of said, oh, well, it probably wasn't the room. It was probably something else that we gave her in her IV. But, you know, I wrote about that piece with an architecture colleague because to me it made a huge impact. And it was one of those aha moments like the sanatorium, thinking that this anecdote can actually lead to confirmation studies and we can 
actually create change. You don't, you know, it can actually become something bigger. So I think that's really the next frontier. And the window answer isn't necessarily straightforward. Well, so we it's have an opportunity evidence. for someone to, to do some research on that because when you look at all the different kinds of studies you can do, um, it almost seems like a low-hanging fruit. I mean, in many ways it would be a matter of covering up a window or not and, and testing it in, in your own facility. But So that's where we are on that. But what about the effect on the clinicians? I mean, we've seen the, the brand-new Apple campus, for example, in uh, Cupertino, California. The thing looks like a giant window, right? I mean, anywhere you go, there's, there's windows. To the point where I think some people are actually walking into them because they're so clear. <laughs> it's like walking into a screen and a screen door. But uh, has there been any research on that? You know, just the mood of of uh, nurses and doctors coming into the rooms and the family who's there with them. So, I mean, it's a it's a great question, and I think the I think we've been a little bit delayed in thinking about the clinicians and the people who are working in hospitals. And the idea of design for clinicians has really taken off in the last few years. And I think now we're starting to see a shift. But I have to say that not that I know of. I think whatever I know would be anecdotal. Um, architecture firms are now starting to write about clinician experiences. Clinicians are starting to write about design thinking in their world. But we really don't have any good concrete evidence um, to look at how we can go. You know, I think design looks at a lot of function and functionality. How can we make physicians or clinicians work more efficient? But we also need to think about how to make it therapeutic for them. So we often think about how design can be healing, preventative, or caring for patients. But I think there's not only a component for them, but also for the people working with patients going through a lot of difficult um, moments in their day or night. Uh, so how can we go beyond function and make design therapeutic? Uh, looking at light, sound, but also surfaces and materials. There really isn't very good evidence for clinicians. I firmly think that the space, you know, I'll defend this to the end, that the space impacts how we work, how we feel, but that's really the next step. So evidence-based design still has a long way to go in terms of proving um, and demonstrating return on investment because everything comes down to cost. People tend to think a well-designed space is much more expensive, and this isn't actually the case. We've seen some wonderful um, critical care units submitted for an annual design competition we do coming in from Europe and Australia, Canada and the U.S., oftentimes under or on budget with high-tech electrostatic glass being used, no curtains, better infection control. These are not over-budgeted units. They're quite, um, they're quite careful in how they think about design and its efficiency, and they do it at cost. If they don't, there's also a return on investment. We've done studies of a, we call it a fable hospital, where we invented a hospital and costed it out. If we upfront put in you know, nature views, acoustic control, windows for staff, how much would that save? Might cost a million or two more upfront, but would we make that back? And we found that we did within one to three years. We did two of them, one back in the 90s, I believe, and then one a few years ago. One to three year return on investment. And we don't even really know the impact on providers. If we're providing more efficient care, we think that we're improving infection rates. We think that we're improving medical errors by making spaces more efficient and cookie cutter so people don't get confused and push the wrong button in one room because it's a mirror image of another. So I think the return on investment is even bigger than one to three years and can be um, quite impactful. Um, one of the uh, problems with evidence-based medicine, is, as you're aware and a lot of our listeners are aware, though, is the, the development of data. In order to do that, you need controls. And one of the ways to do that would be to have to subject people to what really feels like bad design. Um, are you um, 
finding in the uh, evidence-based design uh, field? Are are there ways to to work with controls? Are there ways to get the data that are more effective? So that's something that we're starting to look at now. And so that was another thing I wanted to tell the listeners um, when they think about what are next steps. And I wanted to talk about merging clinicians and designers together. But really, we're on a new frontier and going above and beyond to figure that out. You know, it's funny that good design often goes unnoticed. So you often wouldn't notice a very ergonomic chair with a good backrest that's supportive. Um, or you probably won't notice if there's a nice bench in a park that you sit on and enjoy, but you will notice bad design, which essentially often almost shouts out to us. You know, it can be right. disruptive and unhelpful. Um, and I described some scenarios that really disrupted me. But I don't think that we've gone into actual measurements and controls and simulating experiences. We've been talking about it with several research institutions around North America in the last few months of how do we take that next step, specifically in the area of delirium. So there's mm -hmm. the staff case, but then if you think about patient delirium, it's really interesting to me. I have a particular interest in geriatric medicine, only because I think that's a patient population I really enjoy working with, but that's where design can have a huge preventative aspect. Um, if we can prevent falls and delirium, we're way yeah. ahead. You know, it's very difficult to treat the injuries that happen once a fall occurs or delirium, you know, it never really goes away. We're even learning 12 year, 12 months after an ICU stay, after a delirium episode, people are performing as if they have mild to moderate dementia. So something is tipping people over and it's not really happening when they're cared for at home. It's happening in the hospitals. Why? Um, and if you read the literature on delirium, we know that if we put a clock in the room, we bring the family by the bedside, we normalize circadian rhythms, that's preventative. And that actually helps in terms of therapy. We don't really have good pharmacologic agents. Benzos, Haldol, these things just don't really help. So right. to me, it's like fascinating to think how can we then, could we actually simulate that? Obviously, we can't force someone into a delirious episode. There actually were studies back um, in the 50s and 60s, 60s. If you look at the sensory deprivation literature, they took healthy controls and put them in these sensory deprivation tanks for a good seven days. Right. Uh, probably not something IRBs would approve of today, but these were um, subjects who actually experienced delirium-like symptoms. Some of them could even read and watch TV, but just couldn't have any other contact with any other people or the outside environment. It's really interesting to think about the fact that it was the environment that tipped them into hallucinations or delirium-like symptoms. Mm. So um, I think that's really the next step is looking at how can we assess controls, how can we measure physiologic markers? You know, it's one thing to measure heart rate, blood pressure, maybe cortisol levels in your saliva, but can we go beyond that and measure muscle movements through um, myoband technologies? Can we use, we're even talking about eye trackers. Can we track how many times people will look at a window? Does that matter? Maybe no one's even looking at one if we put it in there. So right. these are really next steps. And I think it, it's not necessarily premature to talk about it, but I think there needs to be funding and an interest to pursue them. And I think we would actually find some really interesting results. Yeah. Can I ask a technical question, a technological question, with the advent of things like smart windows, where you could have a uh, something that would simulate outdoors, simulate a view. Is that something that could potentially um, work in, a, in an, an ICU setting or an OR, for instance, where you do run into sterility issues? You don't want necessarily outside access, but you need some sort of light. Are those artificial uh, means, have they be, are they being studied and is that a potential source of, of um, helping out with this problem? 
So I believe there's definitely a potential source, and I've seen virtual windows being used. We often use them in imaging suites to give people mm -hmm. distraction. I, I haven't, have to say, I haven't seen them used um, instead of windows, and I definitely have not seen anything measured in terms of can we recreate daylight and circadian rhythms with a virtual window. Um, building codes won't necessarily allow for it in places where patients sleep overnight. There's huge mm. potential for staff spaces, you know, emergency departments, like you said, operating rooms. Interestingly, in Europe, operating rooms often have windows. Right. So that aspect is much more of a cultural difference as well. They manage yeah. infection control um, and surgeons really, they, they like it. Patient, a lot of patients are not under general anesthesia. They want to have a view. So um, it's culturally different, but I think virtual windows are probably one of the next steps, as is informatics. So you know, a couple of my colleagues talk a lot about informatics. Most of them are intensivists, but they're sort of telling the architects now, we can't, the design process is to think about ideas, draw it out, model it, and then build it. But we can't then pop in informatics and technology into an already built facility. Right. If you think about it, an IV pole, this is an example my colleague at Memorial Sloan Kettering likes to say, you know, an IV pole is no longer just an IV pole. You've got software, hardware, middleware, you need upgrades, you need to coordinate it. This stuff all has to be worked into the planning at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a gap there. The technology piece is still being fit into buildings because it does take us a long time to plan and build a huge hospital, even in addition. You know, this can take three, five, ten years. And we all know the pace of technology and even just medical literature. You, you know, a year out, it's going to be obsolete. So the big question in architecture is how can we manage that? How can we design spaces that will be flexible for everything that's coming in the future. Virtual reality goggles are now being used in some areas with patients you know, to transform spaces. If that's the case, do we need to focus on making a room beautiful or is it all gonna be artificially induced? So hmm. just some brainstorming questions. We've been thinking a lot about the ICU of 2050, which a few years ago seemed far away and now doesn't seem too far away anymore. <laughs> right. But there's been some interesting thinking about the future of critical care not just things like virtual windows, but actually looking at, you know, a, a private room for every patient. These take a lot of space with its own bathroom. Now codes require a critical care room have its own toilet room. And so these rooms, you know, hallways get really long. Infrastructure, plumbing is very expensive. Can we actually put patients, we called it a biosphere capsule. So you would even have maybe a big room where you have ICU capsules and each patient is in their capsule. It's very high tech. You have holographic doctors. You have an entire um, system that coordinates all of the data, some worldwide ICU data system. And then you even have suspended hibernation systems where patients would essentially mm. hibernate. When we and interestingly, wow. when we looked at it and we drew, we drew this out, you know, we sort of looked back and said, this looks like something familiar. What is it? And it actually reminded us a lot about the iron lung in the 1950s when right. they used to treat polio, you know, put a patient in. So it's funny how some of our designs are actually reminiscent. <laughs> the TB sanatorium still comes back. We think about ways we treated patients in these capsules before to save space and use a big room. So, you know, I think we're going to go high tech, but I think there's going to be some basic design principles that are going to carry through. But I don't know that anyone can necessarily predict where we're going in the next 20, 30 years. Everything is changing so fast. Yeah, that was getting me thinking about that uh, movie. Um, Jennifer Lawrence, I can't remember what it's called, but they were traveling, you know, over a hundred years at sleep and going to a different galaxy. Right, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it has nothing to do with this, but yeah. the idea of, of windows in an operating room, 
That's fascinating. I, I mean, I've been in the OR all day where I got there before the sun rose and left, you know, after it set. So I never even saw the sun. Uh, it, it brings up the point in Europe that seems to be very common. What have we learned? And you've been to Australia, to Europe, all over the place. I mean, that really is a laboratory in and of itself, looking at different uh, countries. What, how has that affected the OR from what you've seen there? And, and what are some differences overseas that really are working that we could ad- adopt here already? So, or, yeah, so it's, it can be a bit of a cultural difference in different countries, but also even, you know, each hospital has its own culture. And I think each surgical team has its own desires of what they want to do. But I even remember in medical school in Toronto, um, there was a hospital in the countryside that did, I think it was only hernia repairs. And patients were, you know, pretty awake. And we had a big window and some bunny rabbit hopped by during the OR and everyone looked. <laughs> and it was kind of like really neat to kind of, moment where the patient said something that the physicians interacted some people feel that windows can be pretty distracting and then there's an infection control issue I haven't found in my travels that this has been a problem at all to me it's really much more of a cultural difference Um, overseas a window can be you know there's laparoscopic surgery so everyone says well we need darkness well there's lots of ways to black out a window and then open it back up more commonly here we see windowless operating rooms but the perimeter corridor around the operating suite will be a nice hallway with windows. So as soon as the surgeon steps out, they'll have a moment to have daylight. But I'm not sure, you know, what your experiences might be, but I've never found that people take much time. You know, everyone's rushing to get to the next thing, to go eat their lunch, to go to the bathroom. They're not really stopping by the windows. Um, it's definitely doable. It, there are examples. Infection control is manageable with the window. Um, daylight control is manageable with the window. And I think as patients maybe we're using more um, anesthetic blocks and conscious sedation in certain areas, you know, I think it's not a bad idea to consider. I'm a big proponent of windows, especially in emergency departments. I don't know if you've noticed that too, but as emergency rooms, we often don't give patients windows and we know that patients can stay there for quite a long time and they're definitely not under anesthesia. Um, there's some examples of doing clear story windows at the top of the room, or even if you're not directly seeing outdoors, you're still getting a sense of what time of day it is, which I think is really important. Um, but it, it definitely varies around the world. And it would be interesting actually to do almost like a, not a literature review or meta-analysis, but even just a case study. And we often do that in architecture where we look at different facilities. But that brings to mind something I wanted to mention is once we build a building, so maybe we build a build, maybe we build an operating room in North America with a window. How do we go back and measure that space? Sure, we can do surveys and ask about, you know, are you satisfied with the operating room? Did you like your experience? That that's helpful, but it's really not that helpful as to how we apply that. I think we do something in architecture called a POE, a post occupancy evaluation. But surprisingly, there's no standardized methodology to go back into a built facility. And there's often no funding. Clients, administrators will say, well, my building's built. There's no more money for architects. You guys are done. But <laughs> like I said, you know, these, these spaces flex. You realize, oh, the cabinet shouldn't have gone here. We should have another crash cart there. We should put, you know, um, a lounge over there and turn the locker room into a shower. You know, things change. But we really don't have a standardized way to measure space or the impact of space in architecture. And there's been a bit of a push in the architectural community to look at post-occupancy evaluations and try to develop some sort of survey-based tool. You know, often in medicine, when we reach for surveys on 
depression or different medical states, there's a pre-validated tool out there that we can just pull and use. We don't have that in architecture. And I think that's something that would be really helpful if we wanted to compare, let's say, operating rooms with and without windows around the world. We would need a tool to do that. Well, keeping yourself open to changes, because that's inevitable. I read a recent article about modular ORs, for example, where the walls, kind of like a conference room in a hotel or something, where the walls you know, can be used or not, moved back and forth, so you can expand or contract the space. Has, has there been much research in that, you know, keeping the door open for changes, but also adapting to changing clinical situations? You know, for example, an open heart procedure versus, well, hernia repair, like you just mentioned. So modular architecture is a big topic. I think trying to understand flexibility of space is also another, and making spaces flexible, not making rooms specific to one need. We all know that you know there's lots of teams using various rooms, and to be the most efficient, you don't necessarily want one surgeon, use, surgeon using the same OR day in and day out where there's time where it goes unused. You want other people to come in and maybe do different things within a day, so you maximize space, which maximizes time and money in the end, and efficiency. So there has been some idea of modular rooms. Uh, we've even seen in healthcare looking at um, crate architecture. So those sort of crates that get carried on the back of a, of, a, of a long truck, can we modularize that and make that a, a movable clinic that then gets put down in certain places? But everything is standardized about those dimensions. Um, I was recently visiting uh, in, in Barcelona in Spain uh, the high-tech operating room called Optimus ISE, which is an integrated surgical environment. And that's a real prototype room where they've built this operating room to be completely integrative in terms of its system solution. It's a very cohesive environment. And the idea is to decrease operating costs, decrease infection rates from surgery, but also make it flexible for different types of surgeries. And you can have a range of sizes. So sometimes we can't get around you know, neurosurgery needing more space than, let's say, an orthopedic room. But the state-of-the-art technology was fascinating to see because they had reached outside the box and said, well, we're not only going to talk to surgeons and architects, but let's talk to acoustical engineers. Let's talk to cinematographers and lighting designers and set designers. Can mm. we make surgical lighting converge so that, you know, if you have three lights converge onto one spot and you lean over, you don't create a shadow in the surgical field. Uh, mm. If you have lights integrated into the ceiling um, controlled by an iPad interface, you don't need to put, well, at least I remember from medical school rotations where you put the little surgical cap on the light yeah. so you can fold them around <laughs> during the hour. I think, you, why are we still doing this today when we have things that can do that for us and we don't need would, to risk infection control? You'd probably save uh, 45 minutes to an hour per case if people didn't have to fiddle with the lights from above. <laughs> and contaminate them with their heads and, yeah. Yeah, uh, just constantly move. Okay, change the light, change the light, stop operating and change the lights again, those big disc lights that they have. So... That, that may be the solution to everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, even just, I mean, just hearing you say that, it just validates everything. I, re I know I'm not a surgeon and I don't work in these spaces, but just hearing you say that for five seconds totally opens my eyes and makes me realize we shouldn't be designing spaces like that. So just these right. little tidbits, and that's where I think the connection of clinicians and designers is so important. You know, about 15 years, I did a lot of school, you're right. I'm not going to say I'll tell you how many years of school I did <laughs> or how many exams I've taken, but... Um, I'd have to say about a decade ago or even 10, 12, 15 years ago, this was a little bit crazy. People just sort of said that's not normal. Um, architects don't become doctors. There's no crossover. And throughout the years, I have built a network and recently turned it into this um, group called Clinicians for Design with a colleague, Eve Edelstein, who's an interesting neuroarchitect who does sort of neuroarchitecture. Mm. Mm. Um, 
to really kind of hone in on clinicians who have an interest in design and get us together because it's only through getting us together and conversations and teaming with architects and looking at research, I think, are we going to make advances. Um, I get calls probably every week or two from different people around the world, other countries, medical students, fellows, asking questions, saying, I am, you know, in internal medicine or I'm in surgery. Uh, I gave you the example before about changing the operating tools. But someone called me once and said, you know, I'd like to understand how academic medical centers are changing. You know, how is the bench to bedside concept changing? You know, in the past, if you look at the old designs of, of Harvard and some of the big hospitals in the States, there really was bench to bedside on the same floor of a hospital. You had the lab and the patient room. So you could walk right. from the microscope to the patient. We don't do that anymore, but we're trying to get back to that. So looking at those questions or someone else said, you know, I want to do a I'd like to do an architecture degree. How can I fit that into my medical training? And this is a very common question that I get, mostly from clinicians. Not as many architects wanting to go the other way, but clinicians keep saying, I want to understand design. And design's a loose word, so I think about design in terms of architectural design in the built environment. But design thinking has become a bit of a buzzword. I think today we see it a lot in the newspaper to think it really means more of a methodology of how you think about a process and space. But, you know, you don't have to necessarily read floor plans to be considered about design. But there is a big push now for people wanting to understand how their space impacts them. And I love that there's this awareness through evidence-based design, probably through all these new construction projects, the 1950s and 60s with critical care, you know, ventilators, all this technology. We really had to change the hospital into this almost like machine-like environment. Uh, and, you know, those big sort of think about soap operas like General Hospital, you picture the hospital as a box and in it is all the technology. But we're really trying to come away from that and demedicalize architecture. And right. we even go back, I mean, it's, it's amazing we're going back to the sanatorium or the asylum model of the nature and Florence Nightingale's notes on nursing, notes on medicine, just understanding that, you know, space has such an impact. But that's where I think the shift will be. But I get, you know, I, a lot of clinicians are really interested in design and they'll even take time to do courses or consider a degree in it. So I'm hoping the hybrid career becomes something more popular in the future. Well, let's, let's just talk about something practical for a moment because we're getting close to the time here and try to be as inclusive of most of our audience as possible here. The, just the clinic, when you're going to see your doctor, this could be a specialist, could be your, your GP, um, it could be the dentist. I mean, I mean, it could be anybody. But what are some basic elements? Say, say someone's looking at redoing uh, not only the aesthetics of their office, but um, you know, also you know, uh, some of the workflow design. You know, to increase efficiency. What are some some key elements that you've learned? And also considering budget restraints. You know, uh, the sky's you know not the limit always. I mean, you, you are constrained by by money. So, if someone's looking at this right now, and I actually know someone who is. Um, what are some key elements they should be thinking about? So it's a great question. Uh, probably not a simple answer, but let's see if we can work through it and come up with some ideas. But, uh, you know, I think clinicians, I, I don't think they take design for granted. I think that um, I think that they understand that, you know, common elements even in the clinic space can impact care quite a bit, how we interact with both each other and patients. So that's important, I think, to understand mm -hmm. that you can also have an impact with how the team dynamics work in a clinic setting. There's all kinds of people in the clinic. And like I was saying before, you sort of have to take each space individually and identify the variables that affect your experience as a clinician or maybe as a patient. And often we'll take, you know, often it's a good exercise to sit down with your team and actually map out flow. We like to sort of call it mapping patient flows, but really map out with or without architects to guide you 
how the patient enters. I mean, even how they get in from the parking. There's one hospital right. that plays music in the parking lot. It's a simple speaker system, but that's part of the experience they want to provide for their patients. Parking and going to the hospital clinic is is part of it. You know, we all have to park our car. We don't often think about it. But something like that, you know, you map out the flow. How much time does it take people to come in? Do we need a waiting room? Oh, a few years back, there was a big push in healthcare design to say, let's get rid of all waiting rooms. We don't need waiting rooms. Patients will be happier. <laughs> we'll save space. We've even done emergency departments without waiting rooms and clinics without them. We found, just anecdotally, that patients still wait somewhere, whether you get put on right. a gurney right away or you're sitting in a chair with a plant next to you. You're still sort of right. waiting. Um <laughs> But can that space be eliminated and through a process analysis? That's where it's interesting. It's not only about the physical space, but also about the process and how you work in the space. Mm -hmm. uh, can that be eliminated? I remember a clinic I worked in where we brought elderly patients down a really long hallway to the scale, weighed them, sent them all the way back to the waiting room, and then I'd have to call them to the clinic room right down near the scale. Can that process be changed where you weigh the patient somewhere closer right. to the weight? A very simple example and no cost, but it's just simply moving something around. Yeah, it's right. like a bait and switch. You think you're in, and then, oh, back to the waiting room. <laughs> right, and then, it, but, like... you know, on the counter side, looking at somebody's mobility, it, it's almost, you know, gives you more information about them than even talking to them by watching how they get there and back. So you right. can make a case for that. But I think that there's simple ways in even a clinic, um, even through, you know, artwork. Everyone says, oh, it's expensive. Well, we've done studies on the impact of artwork and what people prefer, and you might be surprised to know that patients actually don't want abstract art that never yields anything very positive and can right. actually frustrate well, people. And actually, they don't, they don't really want impressionist art, you know, Van Gogh <laughs> and Monet and Manet. What people really like are nature photography. Right. And, you know, that seems to have the best response. And that's a relatively simple intervention to implement in rooms and in clinics. And even just the layout of a room. I think we've all struggled with the computer screen being the um, sort of... Uh, blocker between the patient and physician and how do mm -hmm. we maneuver the room now how can we you know i've seen a pediatric exam room that has more of a a couch design or sofa where patients and their uh, parents and their children can sit together and the physician sit with them and really be part of a discussion and talk about results and really make it less of a desk you know physician behind a desk and that's a simple furniture solution so um, i think there's lots of ways and it's a matter of really mapping the flow and then mapping your work pattern and then understanding who's working in the space. Is right. it being efficiently used? So really kind of a design thinking exercise. How about something as basic as colors? I mean, everything used to be green a long time ago and you know, we've moved on from that. Uh, are there certain colors that uh, make more sense and some that don't? So we have found some data with colors, obviously bright reds and yellows and oranges, anything in the red spectrum tends to possibly promote aggression in some cases or assertiveness. We found that blue has had some good anecdotal data behind it. In fact, there was a, a critical care unit in the Netherlands that was redesigned and they employed a color on the ceilings. It was sort of a pale blue, I guess, maybe like a sky. And they actually found their delirium rates went down. Wow. Just anecdotal um, mm. impact of color, which is really fascinating. I don't think that we have enough data with the sort of the neuroscience behind it, but that's definitely an area that's pretty inexpensive, easy to do, um, and can really change the feeling of a whole room. In fact, the operating room that I went to look at that integrated all these systems has a color effect where through lighting and, and different high technologies, patients are asked, what's your favorite color? You know, what, what music would you like to hear? And it's part of the experience. Mm -hmm. 
So, Daniel, we're getting close to the time here. We really haven't asked you much about where you are right now. So tell us about your career at the moment. I mean, what, um, what kind of projects you're working on and where, where you are? So that's probably the hardest question you've asked yet. <laughs> so I do many different things and many different phases. I think the I have an ultimate goal in mind of how to merge these two professions together. But um, along the way, it's been really immersive in one and then in the other, all the while kind of, I think, research to me and writing has been a way to maintain the bridge to the other field. Uh, you know, residency was a very intense time, but through evidence-based design studies and conferences with architects and some consulting project work, you maintain connection to architecture. So I've really gone sort of from intensive architecture to then sort of medical training. I took a break between med school and residency to work for three or four years in architecture in Australia and the U.S. And then after residency, I've been mostly working in healthcare design in various different places. I'm about to make a bigger move to uh, Boston to do some more healthcare design work, but actually I'm going to be studying bioethics and trying to make a link between, I alluded to this before, but a link between the ethics of, of medicine and architecture, which I think mm -hmm. is a really interesting connection. And then my plans are really to merge clinical geriatric medicine with design in the end. But I think to me, academia makes a lot of sense, pushing the research, trying to team with clinicians, build this clinicians for design group, and really push for funding. And I, you know, I think that's the next step is to really look at funding how can we do these bigger studies? All of the topics you mentioned, there's so much ground to cover. And to me, those are the really exciting things to think about um, in the next phases and, and work with patients and really understand how different countries are so different in the way they think about space design, having seen different areas. You know, what, I think it can reflect our values and social structure, but talking about geriatrics, even the dementia village concept, which is something you may have heard of in Europe, uh, that's being done where, whereby we're sort of getting rid of these nursing home concepts of a place where we stick a person in a room and they might come out to the dining room or they might not. And we might paint black squares in front of the elevators on the floor because patients with certain dementias interpret that as a hole and a void. And it's very scary to fall into a hole in the ground. So you won't go to the elevator. So you won't leave. And that's really a different way of thinking. Overseas, the thinking is let's design an integrative village that promotes wandering and promotes good experiences. So if you want to go to your bus stop or buy your loaf of bread, there's a mock grocery store. It's a totally different way of thinking. And to me, that's just so exciting in terms of what we could do with architecture and health here in North America. So sort of the next phase is really looking around the world and integrating some of that thinking. There's a lot of siloed thinking, like in medicine. We have that in architecture where, you know, it's hard to know what everyone else is doing. But I think it's important. We can learn a lot from different places and designs and studying places that are already built. For those listeners out there who want to learn more about this and maybe even get involved a little bit and collaborate, what are some, some websites, organizations you've already talked about, one, but uh, where are some things you can point them to to, uh, to expand on the conversation here? So, I mean, there's lots of different resources, I think, depending on where people are listening from. Um, I have a, a website where I put a lot of my research and, and people contact me through the website at docatech.com. But cliniciansfordesign.com is also a group that we're starting whereby clinicians are trying, we're trying to network them together and really combine practice, research, um, medicine and design together. So that's a great way for people to get involved. But I'm not sure if many of the clinicians out there know, but we do have an evidence-based design journal that's actually indexed, accessible on PubMed, peer-reviewed. It's really the only one. 
and it's called Health Environments Research and Design, or HERD, H-E-R-D. That's a great place to um, consider publishing and getting involved with. And we also have a Center for Health Design, mostly in the United States. They have a website. They even have a healthcare design magazine you can sign up at no cost and really understand what are the projects going on, maybe pick out some ideas, lots of color photographs, sometimes even floor plans, lots of different resources. Um, and hopefully seeing more of this crossover where, you know, journals and magazines and medicine and architecture are crossing over. I have to say, and medical journals are starting to publish more and more. I do a lot of commentaries and blogs on the topic of design for healthcare as people seem interested. So um, if anyone has any questions, I'm happy to, you know, hear from anyone out there or take emails and recommend papers or places people can learn more. Well, we'll get all of that in the show notes, uh, including a lot of the, uh, you know, the, some of the literature we talked about earlier in the show, as we always do. And um, Keith, do you have anything else? No, good. Amazing stuff. It really is. Um, Diana, thank you again for carving out some time. I mean, you are right in the middle of a move right now. Um, a lot going on, so it means a lot to us, and we had a great time having you on. Thank you so much. Well, thanks so much, Keith and Colin. I think this is a great thanks. thing that you're doing, and I think it's so great to hear about people's journeys and experiences and connect with other people. I think that's makes medicine and design and everything just more exciting and opens up a ton of research possibilities and communication ideas. So I'm very grateful. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, everyone, uh, wherever, whenever you're listening to us, take care, and we'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.